It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Sholley with a very special edition today because I'm with Steve Swinford, the political editor of The Times, and we are in the office of the Minister of State at the Northern Ireland office, Steve Baker. Steve, thank you for inviting us in. Well, thank you for asking me to invite you in. I'm delighted that you're here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you put it like that when you put it like that. It's a nice office you've got here. Explain to me what that picture is behind the door. That is Wickham's weighing in. So that is a tripod with a chair and a big scales. And um, after every May election, they uh, parade us through the town and publicly weigh us. And the town crier shouts out, Steve Baker MP, and some more. And the crowd goes, boo. And this means you've put on weight. It does, and it's and no more if you've lost it. So there's no, there's no marks for losing weight. But it's because there was a corrupt mayor years ago who got fat at public expense. And it turns out in Wickham, even the Labour Party's Conservative. They prefer it if people don't get fat at uh, public <laughs> expense. So hence the weighing in. It's a great tradition. Lovely. Nice to have you with us. Okay, well, we thought it'd be appropriate to start with Brexit. Yeah, let's kick off with Brexit. That's what we're here for, Steve. Brexit hard man. Let's talk about... The worst mistake I ever made. Shall I tell you what I did? Go on. So, uh, on the same day, I noticed in the press somebody'd written me up as Brexit hard man. I've never gone back and found the articles. It's too painful. And then in the evening, I was on Laura Coonsberg's Inside the Brexit Storm documentary, and I I was pictured trying to persuade a, a, a Conservative MP to rebel. And when I got off the phone, I had a tear on my cheek. And, and Kate McCann of Sky at the time had seen this. And she said to me off air, Steve, are you OK? I'm like, yeah, yeah, everybody knows I'm Brexit hard man, Steve Baker. And then stupidly, end of a long day, tired, thinking it was funny, which of course it wasn't. I said, why don't you ask me about it on air? And I said the same thing on air. Oof. Ran and ran, catnip to everybody. My chairman rang me up and said, or emailed me, Steve, can you stop calling yourself Brexit hard man? <laughs> Steve Baker, I said, I've made the mistake once. And it's a disaster that if you can tell me how to get the Times and Stephen Swinford to stop calling me Brexit hard man, Steve Baker would be very glad. So worst mistake I ever made. It's cost me 2,000 votes in Wickham. It's made a lot of people angry and upset. I really regret it. But it, it sort of shows how punishing politics can be if you make a mistake. But anyway, so I really regret that one. But thank you for reminding well, me. Well, no, that was good. I'm glad we cleared that up. Um, we wanted to start on the elephant in the room, as ever, Boris Johnson. He's made another big intervention. Mm-hmm. And he is saying that he wouldn't vote for this deal. He's saying that this deal isn't good enough and would uh, be a, act as a drag on the anchor of our, an anchor on our Brexit freedoms, is how he's framed it. Now, clearly, you don't agree with that. What, what, I'm sure you've seen his words. What do you think? I, I think it's worth anyone objective just looking at what this does, and it results in a dramatic improvement for the people of Northern Ireland in terms of trade, their place in the union, their ability to get democratic control of political power. It is a dramatic improvement on Boris Johnson's protocol a protocol which you will find easy enough, his quotes. I think he said things like, if anyone asks you to do a customs declaration, write to the Prime Minister, or throw it in the bin or whatever. He said things which turned out to be inaccurate about his own protocol deal. And it has to be said, I think, that Boris Johnson voted for the Chequers Agreement in the end, an agreement which I could see would have split the Tory party and let Jeremy Corbyn in. Now, 
People might reasonably ask, why did I vote in the end for Boris's protocol? It's because it was always going to be unfinished business. And you guys might remember, I went out and said of Boris's deal, this is a tolerable path to a great future. The thing that made it tolerable was Boris's protocol. But we knew then it was the reverse of the Chequers situation. If we'd voted against Boris's deal, we would have split the Tory party and lost to Jeremy Corbyn. So we voted for Boris's deal, convicted in our minds that this is unfinished business. So for me, it's a very great relief that we've now got an agreement, which will be susceptible to some unionist criticisms, but perhaps we'll talk about that. But it's a great, a great result. The EU has agreed to amend the protocol very substantially, including, for example, the Stormont Bread, which is very much a real thing. And I think it's great news at last, and it's transformed the relationship with the EU nations. And so I'm really proud of Rishi Sunak and Chris Heaton-Harris, who did the negotiation. They've achieved a really great result, better than most of us expected. What do you think, then, Boris Johnson is doing here? What's his, why is he doing this? Um, I don't know, actually, because I don't think there's any realistic prospect of Boris being back as Prime Minister. Um, and I don't know what he's doing, but I think it... Look, the, on the Green Channel, there's no customs declarations. And so far as I'm concerned, customs declarations means border. No customs declarations, no border. And, you know, if you put goods on a ship, on a ferry over to the Isle of Wight, you'd need a shipping manifest and, of course, invoices and all the rest of it. Or likewise, a ferry to the Isles of Scilly or whatever. So some people seem to be suggesting there's a border, but actually, no customs declaration, no border. But what Boris seems to be neglecting is the actual effect of his protocol, which, if fully implemented, would, of course, have been even worse than it is today. So um, as much as I have immense respect for Boris Johnson's charisma, as I'm afraid I've said before, <laughs> God bless him, he does not have a reputation for a meticulous grasp of tedious details, um, to put it as kindly as possible, and I think everyone should take with a great big pinch of salt what he's saying today. What do you think his motivation is? Is it concern about the customs processes which exist between Great Britain and Northern Ireland? Or is it concern about getting back into number 10? Well, just first of all, um, on the substance, on the green cha channel, with goods not at risk, we're down to just ordinary commercial information. There's no customs processes. Yeah. And we should be clear about that. But... Um, I don't doubt that Boris feels that he left number 10 prematurely, but let's not forget why it was. It's because over the Pincher affair, where ministers, one in particular, found himself on air and unable to defend, but take the line to take over an allegation of um, sexual misconduct. As a result of the debacle over that, ministers avalanched out of Boris Johnson's government. I didn't do that. That was a result of Boris Johnson's handling of the scandal. And the idea that Boris Johnson could be back as Prime Minister when those were the circumstances which finally led to his departure, I'm afraid it's fanciful. So I'm a bit reluctant to speculate on his motives. Boris will main, remain... I will, he will have my admiration for a long time. He saved this country from a major constitutional crisis. He saved us from Jeremy Corbyn. And that means he saved the future of this nation. And I personally, very reluctant to be critical, because I, we owe him this country's prosperity and freedom. But the idea of him coming back, I think he should bank the wins he's got. Um, honestly, Boris, thank you. You saved the country. But no, don't no. come back. Shut up and go away. Well, I wouldn't like to tell anyone <laughs> to shut up, not least a former Prime Minister. But <laughs> I, I, I think it's time to work out what the national interest looks like. Any of us in politics could have legitimate complaints, personal grievances, 
whatever. But actually, I know it's not very fashionable, but wouldn't it be better if politicians all set aside their personal grievances, set aside the legit legacy of the past, and just thought, what's in the best interest of the public of this country? It's a radical idea. I'm not sure it's going to catch on. It probably will be a while, <laughs> but, um, you know, I got into politics because I was so fed up with politics and politicians, I thought, damn it, I'll do it myself. Emigrate, learn, I stand, I stand. One of the things I've really discovered in the intervening 13 years, 15 years, politics is really hard, and that's why it's done so badly. But there's, there's no excuse for putting one's own interests ahead of the public's, and right now I'm absolutely clear that the public's best interests not only in the UK, including Northern Ireland, but right across all of Europe, is to put this to bed with that framework. A lot of your friends, the ERG, are currently looking at this. They've resurrected this so-called star chamber. Yeah. The senior lawyers are going through the detail. Privately, a lot of them are quite negative about it, as Boris Johnson is publicly today. Now, these are your friends. What would you say to them as they pour over this deal, as they think about their next steps? Well, what I have said to them is... Like you, I've read the legal text. I'm going to pretend I've read it in the detail. They will read it over two weeks. But, uh, you know, I'm satisfied the legal text reflects the command paper. And I'm satisfied this is not only as good as we can do, there's much better than anyone thought we would do. And so I would say to colleagues, it's in, it, it, in, it incredibly important to remember that Northern Ireland is a post-conflict society. Now, I joined the Air Force during the Troubles, so I sort of I'm familiar with the troubles, what it meant for people, but I never suffered loss over it. And when I talk to people, and as it really comes home to you with, with anything, when you become a Northern Ireland Office Minister, you really start to see the bitterness and sometimes the unforgiveness, sometimes the unrepentance that goes with being a post-conflict society. And because it's post-conflict society, which owes its... Uh, peace to the good Belfast Good Friday Agreement, it does have a special status. And also, part of that status is about respecting everyone's legitimate interests. So Ireland and the EU have legitimate interests on that border. Sometimes people will say to me, oh, the border could never be policed, there'd never be a hard border, you couldn't police the whole border in the Troubles. But that's not the point. The point <laughs> is Ireland and the EU have got legitimate interests. We can't just do whatever we want in the North. And, and, and tell them that, oh, well, don't worry, that's because you can't enforce the border. No, they've got legitimate interests. So I, I would say to my colleagues, please remember that after I resigned from government, my challenge to us all was we need to say something sensible about Ireland and the border. We published an ERG paper on the Irish border that catalyzed the Prosperity UK Alternative, Alternative Arrangements Commission. Fast forward to today, and I think, even by our own terms, given the special status of Northern Ireland, this is a pretty good result. Now, I can think of ways that one could do it better from a Eurosceptic and Unionist point of view, but look at, the, look at the enormous journey we've had to get here. I, re I resigned five years ago, uh, and, and it's taken five years to get to a tolerable, to good position, and I think we should bank, a good, we should bank the result. On your relationship with the ERG, having run it and now being in government, mm -hmm. I once wrote, I described you in my column as the Jim Henson of the Brexit Muppets, that you were the genius and the... the well, thank you. Yeah, the... Um, I, you heard it here first. Which you and I... I was the genius. You, well, you've, well, precisely. You were the one who sort of seemed to know what you were talking about. How is your relationship? Do they, are you a traitor because you've got into government? Oh, the are T you, word is always, always avoided. Okay. It's funny, the T word gets used in the press as yeah. if we used it to one another. Yeah. Um, but... Are uh, you still in the gang then? 
Well, look, the fact is, as a, for technical reasons, if you're the creator of a WhatsApp group, <laughs> you, can't, you can't leave it. <laughs> so um, I've tr- I think I tried to leave the ERG steering WhatsApp group at one point, but, you know, because I created... Because you're the admin. I, I'm, the, I'm the original admin of all these groups, yeah. and so inevitably I'm still in them, and I'm not ashamed to still be in them. As a minister, I'm entitled to political activity, and so... To be in a group with other members of parliament doing politics is perfectly do you, they might, do you think they might have a group without you? Um, well, there have been groups without me, but I've typically I always discover them and then I find a way to get into them. But my, my goal always is to be the administrator of every political WhatsApp group. Good. I've got a way to go. Uh, we've done the ERG. What about the DUP? What's your message to them this week? Well, yeah, I, I would say I recognise that this is an incredibly difficult time for you. Because what is existential for the DUP is the union. Um, But I would say much to them that I've said to uh, BBRG that we have to bank this win. I think this is a good result given the special circumstances of Northern Ireland. You know, Wickham is not in a post-conflict society, thank God. Wickham is not on an island which has an international border which we're going to keep open without infrastructure. So some of my DUP colleagues have said, well, Steve wouldn't take us in Wickham, but Wickham's in different circumstances and I think in all the circumstances of Northern Ireland this is a good bankable result for the union and they may well have many complaints that there's some less than three percent of EU law still applies. Um, They may have some legitimate complaints about that but I earnestly believe that in all of the circumstances this is a great basis on which to restore Stormont particularly because the public desperately needs Stormont receipt. Look, 25 years of peace in Northern Ireland is an amazing achievement of tr- tremendous statecraft that delivered that agreement. Incredible statecraft, really historic, 25 years of peace. But anyone can see the agreement hasn't delivered political stability. So as we approach the anniversary, we now need to get onto a conversation about political stability and the amazing prosperity that can be built on it. 25th anniversary, Joe Biden's coming. With this deal on the table, there is a potential from the government's point of view that this will start to open the taps for US investment in Northern Ireland. We've got an amazing, amazing opportunity in Northern Ireland. The Prime Minister talked about the special status of dual market access, and that's wound up some Remain voters. But the crucial point is to say that Northern Ireland, because it's in the UK customs territory, benefiting from UK trade deals and, crucially, UK services regulation outside the EU but also has unfettered EU goods market access. That really is unique, and it's a unique and amazing status which arises from the special position of Northern Ireland. But as an EU member state, we wouldn't have had the opportunity to regulate differently as we're going to on services. We wouldn't have had the opportunity to strike uh, services-free trade agreements, which I don't doubt we'll do. And taken together, that means that the incredible entrepreneurship in Northern Ireland on fintech, on financial services, indeed on engineering and manufacturing, will be incredibly well served by this arrangement. So the real game in town for the UK now is going to be the free trade ports, the free, the free ports, and Northern Ireland. Now, I would love Wickham to be a, a free port, but it doesn't seem on the cards just now. But, but if you're going to invest in the UK, you want to be investing in the free port or Wickham or uh, Northern oh, Ireland. Good. And on the, you talk about political stability. If the DUP don't come back to Stormont, the only option is to have elections, isn't it? And well, the, in which, given the way they've behaved, it's possible they won't do terribly well, at least judging by the polls. 
Well, so we've got to be very, very careful about always about what voters might choose to do. So uh, the, we've changed the law so that we now have a long period of extension, but the Secretary of State has uh, the, uh, the power to call an election when he wishes, so it can be up to him. So if we could potentially get into a process of discussion about whether they're returning, if, uh, if they're not satisfied, but every moment this drags on is another moment when we haven't done, the they haven't done, the necessary public service reform in Northern Ireland. So I would implore them, if they possibly can go back to the executive, it's a devolutionist party, the DUP, I would implore them to go back because I see all the time the terrible state of the public services. So if somebody came to see me and complained, why have I got four grammar schools in my town? And somebody else will complain, 52% of people in Northern Ireland wait over a year for their first outpatient appointment. Yep. They've got cancer, that's devastating. Mm. Now, DUP voters who I've met have plainly been willing to pay the price so far, but this is not human. It's not a humane way to treat people leaving the public services in that state. And 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 however brilliant officials may be, and there are brilliant officials in in Northern Civil Service, they just can't govern the country without ministers. So, I I would say yes. I I recognise the DUP have got hard compromises to swallow here. There's compromises I'm willing to swallow because I can see the amazing potential. So I've already met an EU member state ambassador who's so excited about the transformation of our relationship. Ursula van der Leyen mentioned Horizon, but think of all the other areas where we could get what I've always wanted, which is friendly cooperation, but on, an in, on a different basis. I'm so excited about having a positive relationship with our European neighbours, but from outside the yeah. EU, and this might deliver it. So. Please, please, the DUP, if you possibly can, take the deal. Get in there, take the deal, sort out public services and be heroes. I do think this vindicates the DUP's position. Yep. They insisted that they weren't going to go back until this was sorted. Just about anyone will tell you that this is an amazing result, far better than anyone expected. And uh, honestly, I would say with humility, I think the DUP have vindicated here politically. And I really would say, please bank the political win. If you, let's, let's move on. Um, we wanted to obviously talk about mental health, um, and you made some comments during the week on that. We wanted to actually start with something we've talked about recently, Steve, which is where you are today and how you're feeling today. From where I sit, you seem to be more content, more level and, and happier than you've been for quite a while. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely, 100%. So I'm 15 months on from a proper mental health crisis. And at the beginning of this year, I, in fact, I can feel it now, Beginning of this year, I said to my wife on Saturday, I can feel this strange feeling inside of me. I, Where's it? Do you know, I think it might be happiness. And on the one hand, it makes me joyful, but also it's tragic because I realised I haven't felt happiness since before the referendum. And um, at last, yes, to where I am today, I am stronger than I've ever been, more resilient than I've ever been, more settled, happier than I've been for a long time. So I'm great. But one of the problems, you know, Victoria Derbyshire asked me that question. Like you're emotional. I gave the answer I did. Got a terrible habit of answering questions. But the problem we're talking about mental health is people are asking me today the questions that needed asking 18 months ago. Yep. Are you okay? Have a rest. And I'm, I'm fine today. I don't need a rest. Well, everybody needs a rest, but I don't, yeah. I'm fine today. And I've only got one reason really for talking about mental health. It's not because I want sympathy. It's not because I want quarter. I don't want sketch writers to stop writing about me or cartoonists. You know, as a, as a police superintendent said to me, society's a pressure cooker, you are the safety release valve. That's why it's so tough. 
The reason for talking about it is it will help save other people's lives. The reaction I've had to this, which is so overwhelming, I've had Labour MPs and Labour staffers pouring out their hearts to me. Or maybe not hearts from the MPs. The MPs have just, <laughs> Labour MPs have start, who've never speak to me have started being, engaging me in polite and warm conversation. Why? Because they can identify with me suddenly over this. And Labour staffers, I had a great chat at the Kebab Awards with Labour staffers. People are so grateful. Why? Because it says to others who've got mental health difficulties, you're not alone. And actually, crucially, you guys, nobody knew I was suffering with that severe anxiety and depression. Because you can be high performing whilst wishing you were dead. And there'll be loads of people we meet every day who are high performing, but they think they're worth nothing. There's no pleasure in life. I've got the Bex depression inventory here. Do you mind if I go through? Please do. So just explain what that is, first of all. Yeah, sure thing. So this is a, a, a checklist of scoring from, there's a, there's a set of word pictures. You score naught to three for each answer. And then at the end, you add them up if you've got, as I did, if you're over 31, if you're in the range 31 to 40, that is severe depression. 40, over 40 extreme depression. So if you're feeling you might be depressed, Google Beck's depression inventory, Beck's depression inventory, and just go through it. And that will help you to understand whether you're depressed. So if I may, I'll just give a few of the word pictures about where I was, which is to score three. I'm so sad and unhappy that I can't stand it. I feel the future is hopeless and that things cannot improve. I'm not going to go through all of them. I feel I am a complete failure as a person. Now, looking at the reaction I've had, there'll be some people delighted to think I felt a complete failure. Well, God bless them, but no one should live like this. I feel guilty all of the time. I hate myself. I blame myself for everything bad that happens. Um, you know, very painful. I would kill myself if I had the chance. Um, I won't go through them all. I believe, that, I believe I look ugly. I feel irritated all the time. Too tired to do anything. No appetite at all anymore. And, and, and that's but, where you were? Yeah, I scored, I scored deep into the 30s. So on the checklist, that's severe depression. And it's a serious thing. It can take people's lives. Lots of people appreciate you sharing that. Can you flesh out for us a bit what it was that you think got you to that place? Was it politics? Because there could be lots of things that yeah. happen in other people's well, private lives. Was it bound up in the extraordinary moment in politics that was happening from the referendum in 2016 up to 2021? Absolutely, undoubtedly, it was extreme stress. So it's true that through my life I've wrestled with depression. Even as a child, I used to say to my mother, you know, hell is here on earth, because I'd see the starving of Ethiopia or whatever was on the news, hell is here on earth. So I wrestled a bit when I was a kid. Um, I was depressed when I left the Air Force. I didn't want to be in the Air Force anymore doing the job. I was, and I was on antidepressants briefly then. But leaving the Air Force sorted it out. I loved the Air Force, but unfortunately they gave me a job I didn't want to do. And I had no future because I didn't like the, the particular job on aero engines. I was good at it, but I didn't like it. Um, but leaving sorted that out. Then in 2013, I had a really dark episode, but in sort of acute and brief. But that was as a result of the condemnation we get. Day after day, inbox, opposition MPs, social media, you hate the poor, you're beating down on the poor. You know, you don't care. Um, again, it's part of the pressure of safety. But being told that over and over again, I came to a moment where I, it was a very dark moment. Can I leave it at that? Yeah. But I, I came out of that moment and thought, I'm never going there again. Uh, I'm never going there again. And then, um, I did Conservatives for Britain, Vote Leave, which had all sorts of problems. 
um, government, which I was actually fine last time around. Then I did the ERG, I remade the ERG, then went into government, then the ERG again for Chuck Checkers. By the time we got through the major constitutional crisis, which I admit, you know, I played a part in creating it, but I, want, I also wanted to play my part in resolving it, which is why this framework is so important. I held all these tigers by the tail. I mean, I sat in the House of Commons with one of these phones in my hand and broadcast, as you said, Jim Henson, the Brexit Muppet Show. That's one of the best coverage I've ever had. But the cost of being the Jim Henson, having 130 MPs on broadcast, and what I remember one day, it's still sitting in my mind's eye, I'm sitting there in the Commons on the, with where Jacob sits, and we talked about which way a vote should go, and it wasn't an especially important one, but it's still a vote in the House of Commons. And everybody was looking at me, because everybody knew, not for the first time, that I was about to decide which way the vote would go. And I just sent the pre-prepared, whichever of the two pre-prepared messages, and if I recall correctly that day, something like 75 MPs went through the Revel lobby, because I'd asked them with a few minutes' notice. What an amazing degree of trust. But I was wielding that power, and I, I wielded that sort of power again and again and again. One of the earliest ones during the Conservatives' written days on text, not WhatsApp. Charles Walker and I in a tea room. There was some stupid rule that had been class, pa passed, which was really hurting families of politicians over politically ex exposed persons. But in context, people were not able to get mortgages because they were family of politicians. Mm -hmm. Charles had an amendment he wanted to the finance bill, which is a big deal, can be a confidence motion. So two of us are sitting there and there, he's tabled his amendment, and I've got my text message broadcasted. So I said, Charles, do you want this amendment? Because if I press send, you're going to get it. And he went, I said, do you want it? Yes, send. Within minutes, 15, 20 minutes, I had over 50 names, and George Osborne just gave away on the finance bill amendment. And it's all very well, it's a bit of a laugh if, you, if you're kind of that way inclined, but actually it's not funny, because in here, I've got 160 people here in this small department, the people want to know what I want to achieve, will advise me, will tell me when something's not a good idea, but they're unsupported deciding which way the future of the nation would go. And yeah, we were working together as colleagues, but in the end I was the one with the broadcast list. I was the one trying to manage the Eurosceptics into the right place. Do you know what? I'm proud I did it, because difficult things that are worth doing are hard. But, oh my God, I needed. I was depressed and, I, and stressed out and exhausted at the 2019 election. And I needed a break. And then we had to do the CRG. And by the time I'd done CRG, we got into Net Zero Screening Group as well. That's what broke me. The, the, the whole COVID stuff on top of it. I just held too many tigers by the tail. And no one can do that. All these tigers by the tail on life and death in the end. And, you know, it's a thousand years of history ahead that's going to be different. And it's just too much for one person to bear without lots of support. You don't get it if you're a rebel commander. You talked about the um, mental health crisis that you had 18 months ago. Mm. Can you talk to us about that in whatever terms you're comfortable with? Yeah. Uh, how did that manifest? Yeah, so I'd um, probably, think it was probably thanks to Jin that it crystallised. The night before I'd been... <coughs> The night before, I'd been to see one of my Conservative colleagues to catch up on some stuff, and we were drinking gin. And of course, gin itself is a depressant. So I was at my prayer group in the morning. I can't remember what set me off, but something set me off. I just started crying. And then I was to control it. And um, the Reverend who was there, Mark Harris, he came back to my office and was looking after me. And I just couldn't go on. I, was, I couldn't speak. I couldn't. I was just like clutching myself and just sobbing my heart out. 
and just couldn't control the emotions or the or, or the tears. And um, Patrick actually got to the point could speak to him, and we agreed that my staff had to know. And no staff should see their member of parliament. Nobody should, have to, and particularly young people, shouldn't have to see an authority figure like that. But my God bless them, my two young staff saw me in that state. And Mark explained what was going on. And it explained a lot that they'd seen, because I'd been having severe anxiety attacks for a long time and making trouble for myself and then worrying about the trouble I'd made. And you can imagine spiralling into a terrible pit. And my two young staffers had seen that, but suddenly, of course, everything made sense because I'm suffering from anxiety and depression. But those two young people and my office manager, in fact, my whole team, but I'll be eternally grateful to them. They kept absolute confidentiality, even though all of them knew I was really suffering. They didn't leak to anybody. And the two London staffers in particular, um, I don't know, I don't get too carried away, but I couldn't have gone on without them. Can you explain, we've obviously got the scale that you talked about earlier, but put the scale to one side. What, what were you feeling? Just try to articulate it as best you can. It's very hard well, to put into words. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it is tough to talk about, and I'm not fully ready to confront all of it publicly. I mean, I'm here confronting it today because I answered Victoria Darvish's question, but I hope you forgive me if I slightly draw, draw, draw some boundaries. But I felt absolutely worthless as a human being. I felt repugnant, hateful, um, to blame for all of the troubles that we had, absolutely without any joy, constantly worried about everything to the point of torment, mental torment. Make it, you make a speech or give a comment to the person, oh, was that okay? Everything, well, did, I, did I do the right thing? Would it be all right? Second guessing everything and then being worried about the second guessing. So constant state of basically panic attack and anxiety while feeling worthless. It's not a state anyone should live in. And um, once or twice, I mean, I remember one time my, um, the younger of my two parliamentary assistants was there, a young lady, and my main attorneys. And I had to just go through and say to them, could you please just come through and just talk to me about anything? In the port comes just talk to me about anything. Because I can't go on. And they, did, they just came and sat down, just... She asked me silly questions like, what's your happiest mental? And she put, I don't know, that day is really cool, let's just put it that way. But she, she, she'll know now, I'm not blaming it, but she'll know now if she, when she reads this, but... So I see, just take a second. It was a very important day. Yeah. So anything those guys, anything those guys ever need from me, from me that I can properly do, as long as, as long as we all live, I'll do it. Because I owe them. But my wife too, my goodness, my wife's been through the mill with me. But the love of my wife and um, the kindness of my staff, my office manager who I've known for 15 years, the amazing, brilliant young people who work for me, who, you know, together we got through COVID and CRG and we all hated it. We all suffered. They'd missed out on two years of youth, right? But we got through it together and they were just there for me when I needed them. And I think anybody watching this who's struggling with their mental health, I mean, look, this is what good looks like. I'm not depressed now. <laughs> but anyone who's struggling with their mental health, there's somebody out there who loves you and live for them. Live, live for them, even if you don't want to live for yourself, live for them. And if you really look though, ring the Samaritans because there's good and kind people who will be there for you. 
did, did you ever felt I didn't I, said, mm -hmm. I didn't need to because I had my wife and I, my, I didn't need to get counselling yeah. from my staff but they were very supportive yeah. but between I had enough but you imagine during COVID and going through a lot of this during COVID well that was right at the end wasn't it, it was, yeah. I mean I was severely anxious and depressed during the CRG's time but it crystallised in the November but then and then we were kind of more or less then out of restrictions but what about your faith you talked about how it came to a head when you were at church what difference does that make to you at the time and since? Well, it actually came to a head in a Bible study in Port Cullis House. But oh, okay. yeah, yeah. But um, my Christianity is absolutely central to who I am. I like to think I'm a mere Christian. But of course, the trouble is I'm a Christian libertarian, which is enough to alienate absolutely every last one of your <laughs> readers and listeners. Um, but yeah, my Christianity is very important to me. But fun, oddly enough, one of my favourite books of the Bible is Ecclesiastes, which is just about telling you that life is meaningless, everything is in vain, and all we're going to do is work and work and work, and nothing's really going to change. And you say, well, how does that cheer you up? Because that's what I experience. So <laughs> we keep going through the same stuff over and over again, and we work really hard, but th not everything is in vain. But it's sort of it, it sort of played into it. But my Christianity is fundamentally important to me because... I personally think that um, if one looks objectively at the life of Christ and uh, that the, the evidence is overwhelming, not only did he live, but he died and rose again. And um, I think once you commit to being a Christian, you can start seeing all of that work in your life. Um, but my job as a politician is not to preach the gospel. Only. There's a line in the Bible that you should always be ready to give the reason for the hope that you have. So if you ask me about it, I'll tell you. But I'm not. It's surprising how often people ask once they know that you'll answer. But I'm not actually in politics to preach the gospel, although I've been on front of the church times for days. So. <laughs> Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You obviously talked about the love of the people around you, the people that work with you and your family, but... More broadly, I mean, did you seek medical help at that point? Yeah. Did you go to your GP or therapy? Because that's, you know, key part of this, I think. Yeah, I did. Um, 
So Parliament makes available services to staff and to MPs, and I it immediately, and it's of course it's private healthcare, controversially, but I immediately got the attention of an occupational, uh, what they call occupational health consultant. He immediately referred me to a very good psychiatrist at the Nightingale. I went to see the psychiatrist where I was absolutely in bits, and he prescribed sertraline. What is sertraline? Sertraline is an antidepressant. Um, you're not supposed to drink on it. And I've discovered that they do mean that. <laughs> <laughs> you get some good head headaches. But, and, but if I have a glass of wine and when I'm on surgery, I, I just don't sleep. So I've got some drowsiness-inducing um, antihistamines, which will get me to stay asleep all night. But most of my, very often my night's sleeps are interrupted still, even today. But um, grave difficulty sleeping. But anyway, sertraline plus the stuff to help me sleep is not addictive, thank God. And then I eventually gave in. I had a relapse in March. I was doing okay. And then I had a relapse in March and I just realised I had to go for counselling. So you have CBT, cognitive behavioural um, therapy. So it teaches you to ask questions like, if somebody else was saying this to you, what would you advise them? That sort of thing. So you can pull yourself up. But also I've learned to be honest. Um, I don't think my team in here would mind me saying that even today, I make a speech and I've always been a real introvert to almost the point of acrophobia sometimes. That's quite hard when you're a politician. Mm. But I can be in a big crowd and I might have had a tough day and I'm tired. And I've got to make a speech anyway. It happened last week. And afterwards I said to my private secretary, was, was that okay? Yes, it was, because I just need you to know I'm having an anxiety attack right now. I'm going to need you to get me out of here in 10 minutes. And thankfully, because I've got understanding team members who are there to support me, um, you know, I was told, yeah, it was a good speech, and yes, we'll get you out of here in 10 minutes, and then it all happened. But I, I sort of used that, not, again, I'm not looking for, I, I think I'm doing my job well, I'm told I'm doing my job well, but I'm saying it so that other people know it's okay to ask for help. If you get anxiety attacks and you need someone else to get you out of there or cover for you, funny enough, last night I was, I needed, I, I, was, a, I was so exhausted, an absolutely packed, super noisy venue. And um, we came out of the theatre and my phone filled up with messages. So I just took that as an excuse to go around a quiet corner. And I sat on the stairs there and a lady appeared. She said, is it too nice for you too? And we had a nice chat, but I realised, you know, you just, if you're going through this stuff, you're not alone. That's the main thing I want people to take away. There's nothing to be ashamed of. No one is going to positively compare me to Churchill, least of all <laughs> the world's brilliant diarist, Matt Jawley. Um, but Churchill suffered from the black dog of depression and got us through what he got through. So those of you who are depressed and anxious, you're not alone. People care, help's available. Look after yourself and remember that others, others are going through it too and they're there for you. Why did you, people listening to this, reading this might be thinking, why have you stuck at it if it was that bad? I've looked at what I interviewed did a few years ago and you said you'd much rather be yeah, well, to go to work scruffy, unshaven in shorts and flip-flops. Well, I've gone for the unshaven bit. Yeah, you've still I? got that, but you definitely haven't got shorts no, and flip-flops. You're sitting now in a ministerial office yeah. in, the, in the Treasury oh, building. Yeah. Um, no, my wife said to me, you always grow a stubble beard when we're on holiday. Why don't you just keep them? And actually, I'm underneath this, I'm wearing a cross and a, uh, a parachute make a pin, main, main, main release pin. And I've got this leather stuff on my wrist. And people were criti I got the Times fashion correspondent, saw a picture of me with my... Um, these two necklaces on, I'm going to take the tie off then, with these two necklaces on display. 
and this stubble beard. And somebody on, online said, it's like divorced dad does Glastonbury, <laughs> <laughs> which made me laugh. But these are all about my recovery. The Chris, obviously, the cross is about my Christianity. This is a very uh, middle-aged, um, midlife crisis thing. Um, and, and, and these that's, are about... So just to explain, that's your... That, that's some skydiving. Yeah, that's, that, that reminds me. Yeah. So you say, why do I go on? I go on because I think it matters to go on. Mm. I think I've got a job to do to represent Wickham that actually I'm okay at. I'm quite good at it sometimes. I'm pretty good at this, I'm told, by people who are in the business of assessing these. But this sort of why go on, also, I'm really answering yeah. how. Yeah. I go on because when I wear this... When I've got it in my hand, I feel the joy rising. Because I can open the door of an aeroplane, look out, check we're in the right place, and not just exit the aircraft, but exit with confidence and joy and a big smile on my face and do a great skydive with friends, land usually on my feet, and then go and so do what, it again. What actually is that metal thing there, Janet? It's, uh, it's the, I mean, this is obviously just for a necklace, but yeah. that is exactly what a main parachute release pin looks okay, like. Okay, so it's literally... You, so, so the way it works is you put a parachute in a bag yeah. and it goes in a container that goes on your back. Yeah. And there's a bit of string comes through four flaps and then this pin goes through the bit of string and you put it flat like that. There's then a drogue, which you tuck away. So in free fall, I've got a nice gift we can put out on yeah. the thread. You reach back, you pull the drogue, the drogue pulls the ribbon out that turns upright and pulls out, and then the thing pulls the parachute out, and there's the parachute. So it's just like, they, on, on a helicopter, they call it a Jesus knot, because there's like one nut that holds the rotor on in some helicopters, and obviously it comes off, you're in trouble. In a sense, this is the Jesus bin, because it's the last thing you're gonna be saying if this sort of goes wrong, but anyway, ask me if I've ever had, ever had a parachute malfunction. Have you ever had a parachute malfunction? <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> After I resigned from government in Portugal, deployed my main parachute, and um, a toggle stuck, steering toggle stuck, and I ended up spinning and uh, just deployed the reserve, landed successfully on the golf course. It felt fantastic. Can I ask you two things related to mental health? The first was, um, obviously you were going through immense inner turmoil repeatedly, and yet you somehow maintained a facade to people around Westminster. People were not aware of what was going on inside your head. How difficult was it to maintain that facade when you're feeling like that and tight? Um, yeah, very difficult, because I know that I was sometimes made laughing and making jokes, but I wasn't really happy. Um, I think you just pick yourself up by the scruff and let and go on. But I'm very conscious, particularly because of the feedback I've had. There's lots of people out there blame me for their misery. But it's an unfortunate thing on this question of leave and remain, that leaving the EU has caused a great deal of anxiety and anger and depression for a lot of people. But unfortunately, being in the EU caused a lot of anxiety and anger and depression for people, just a different group of people. So when it comes to maintaining a facade, I think there's a lot of people going through life who are angry and depressed and going through the mill. Somehow they're coping. I saw a sign up this morning, abuse will not be tolerated. And of course abuse shouldn't be to tolerated, of course it shouldn't. But why are some people abusive? Because they're suffering and they lose control, because life's so bad, somebody's only got to just say the wrong thing, bang. And um, no one should ever be abusive. I'm blocking people left, right and centre for being <laughs> abusive, partly because I need to look after myself. But I would just say we all need to be gentle with each other. Let's all try and think, how will the other person feel about this? You know, and I said earlier about 2013 and where I was, it was because my email inbox, my social media and, and Labour MPs, 
were absolutely condemning me, us Tory MPs, in the most strident terms, day in, day out. Well, of course you feel you're worthless and guilty because everybody's telling you, you're worthy, worthless, you're guilty, you're hateful. And you start thinking, maybe I'm worthless and guilty. I thought I was into social justice. I thought I cared about the poor. I thought the reason that I was a free market conservative was because I understood that socialism never works in its own terms, always reduces poverty and misery, even tyranny and mass murder, and that the only system that works is the system of a free society. And that's why I'm a free market liberal conservative, because I know it's capable of working. And that's why I gave so much time to the Centre for Social Justice, because I would like us to generate the resources necessary to lift the poor out of poverty. That's what I thought I stood for. But if you go up and keep telling me that I'm hateful and worthless and don't care about the poor, despite me working in the homeless night shelter since it started, constantly supporting the food bank and so on, well, maybe you're right and I'm wrong. And you just forget who you are. But I would just say to other people, you know what? There's no way trolling's going to stop because we run this interview. But at least some people might just say, mm, maybe I should just think, maybe just have the humility to think maybe the other person's not a bad person. Julian Maughan made me laugh because he, he, he said lots of, Guido picked up on it and the lawyer, Julian Maughan, had said something very stridently critical with no sympathy. But that's fine, I'm not looking for his sympathy. But I just think some people who will take a very sympathetic line on mental health, unless it's Steve Baker or somebody else they disagree with, I might just say to them ever so gently, you know, God bless you, but may, maybe, maybe just get off social media and just take stock for a minute mm. and ask yourself, who do you really want to be? Because I'm, I'm absolutely sure I want to be on peace with everyone I can be. I'm willing to reconcile with anyone I can. I want this country to move on. I don't want anybody else to have to go through what I've had to go through. And whether it's COVID or Brexit or net zero, whatever the point of controversy might be, taken the knee, any of these things I've been involved in, at some point you've got to take a wee close a chapter, start a new, better chapter and move on. So if I may just sort of bring these things back together, this is why I've been so willing to back this deal for all its compromises. These compromises are about respecting the legitimate interests of everyone in Northern Ireland, including keeping a border open. And I don't mind saying, whilst I've looked at this completely rationally, usual rigour, for me, I am very, very committed to this country closing one chapter and starting a new one. And I think everybody needs that, whether it's COVID or Brexit, whatever's been upsetting them. I think this would be a great moment for us all to take stock and see if we could maybe be a bit kinder for, to each other for a little while, see how long that can last. Quite common, Steve, in, I think it's more common than people think in Westminster. I think there are a lot of MPs that suffer with mental health issues. Is that fair? You, you will have spoken on shorts more than in recent days that I have, but I think behind the kind of facades, if you like, there, there's a lot of mental health issues in Westminster. I absolutely do not doubt that there is. There is a reason why the occupational health psychologist was able to, uh, occupational health consultant was able to leap straight on it and refer me. And they're, they're, I'm, I'm don't, I don't doubt I couldn't name them, or I wouldn't name them, but I don't doubt plenty of MPs are depressed, and probably journalists too, I dare say, and staffers. But the reaction I've had to answering Victoria Dovish's question has been overwhelming. My staff have told me my inbox has never been so positive. I've had positive reactions from opposition politicians and staff. And the reason is because they're going through it too, to answer your mm -hmm. question. They're going through it too. But I have to say, I'm not going through it now. I'm not quite right yet. 
But I'm almost there. I'm starting to feel happy. And I'm starting to, uh, well, just have the normal ups and downs like anyone does. But other people out there who will listen to this, watch this, read about it, they'll be in the darkest pit of depression. I think it's important that they know that they're not alone at all. Um, you you can do the joy do the quick, quick fire. fire. Oh, we, 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 we are duty fire. bound. Humour to by the times. To right. do the quick fire questions. Should I put my tie back on for the quick fire? I think I'm right. braced up. I'm in the mood. Uh, Wickham or Westminster? Wickham. Skydiving or motorbike? Oh, that's a tough one. Riding my motorbike to the drop zone for skydiving. <laughs> Could you not leap out of a plane on a motorbike? Only if it was a big aeroplane. If the Royal Air Force would like to put on C-17, <laughs> I'd be very happy. Theresa May or Boris Johnson? Fifth Amendment. You can't choose. Oh, they both have great merits. Boris Johnson. Oh, Rishi Sunak or Boris Johnson? Rishi Sunak. Why? Because Rishi... Because he's his boss and you get the sack of his <laughs> That is a good answer. That's an excellent answer, yes. <laughs> I've always admired Rishi, actually. And um, he, uh, when he first turned up, he and I, he knew who I was. He'd been reading some of my material. And we've always liked one another. And I agree with him, I think, on just about everything. And he's a man of a, he's got a really good moral centre. I mean, admit it, he's a Hindu, I'm a Christian, but I recognise he's got a reason for his moral centre. And he's a man who seeks after doing what is good and right. We talked at one point privately about the need to avoid destitution through this cost of living crisis. Never heard another politician use the word destitution. Rishi wants to avoid destitution. He, he's a social justice kind of free market conservative. Well, I'm gonna like that. But crucially with Rishi, intellect. I mean, I've got a reputation, if I may say so, for being across the detail. But Rishi, wow. You look at him talking, ask him anything about this protocol, he'll be on it. Confidence, robustness, agility. Come on, brilliant. So if, if the country can get to know Rishi Sunak and his, and his genuine merits, and if he can get his head with a loyal party that will get behind him, wow. We could do some great stuff. So, yeah, Rishi. So far, I think Rishi's going to be capable of delivering the consistent professionalism at the dispatch box that David Cameron delivered, but so much more besides. So I'm really actually, genuinely, I'm excited about Rishi Sunak as Prime Minister. Well, let's end on that upbeat note. Lovely. Uh, Steve, um, really appreciate your time. You're um, welcome. And for being so honest, and hopefully it will help some people. So, Steve Baker, thanks. And Steve welcome. Smith as well, thanks for joining us. Thank you both very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.